Hello, and welcome to the Still To Be Determined podcast, the podcast that follows up on topics from the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I'm the older brother and the interrogator of the aforementioned Matt Farrell. Matthew, say hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about Matthew's most recent episode, which was Solar Panels for Home. Still worth it two years later? Question mark? <laughs> It's, there's always a question mark. There's always a question mark. <laughs> this episode dropped thanks to a typo on October 20th, 2002. That's what I wrote down. <laughs> 202. <laughs> this is a very old episode. We're finally getting around to it. So you may remember that uh, St. Paul said of this, Matthew, that no. That's... <laughs> so this episode it was a little interesting for me to approach from the perspective of as the host of this podcast coming to you and saying like, well, let's talk about this. You lay out everything so clearly and cleanly that I really mm -hmm. have very little in response. <laughs> then I did my job. <laughs> yes. And, and it was interesting because coming through the comments, there was the same sort of response within the comments, which were people like, wow, this was so thorough. Thanks so much. <laughs> and I was like, God damn it. <laughs> well there's a reason for that though it's because this is the third one in the series uh right. the first the first one i did this is the I end got, of the trilogy right you're not making it's the end of the trilogy early. right until until i do the prequels um right. and right. then i cg everything in the original ones out right and do it all and over then we again find out what made the dark panels dark in the first exactly place. yes but seriously <laughs> the first two videos i did the way i handled them i answered a bunch of questions but I left gaps and then there were these tons of these questions about like, well, what about maintenance? What about care? What about this? Right. And so then this one, I took all of those questions I had gotten on those previous ones and just rolled it all together to try to make one that was as cohesive as possible that right. would get ahead of those questions before people would ask them. Right. You were so able I, to use I, the first two as a, as a rough draft almost of creating. Ex exactly. Yes. Yeah. So th this one was a more cohesive, well held together, I right. think. Which is why one of the comments that caught my eye and it made me laugh was somebody said, well, you just answered my question about dust, dirt, and pollen. Thanks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so into the comments, one that struck me as about as thorough as your video itself was from Jerry Gerardo. Jerry wrote, I had been researching solar for years, and for me, it was never financially viable until a couple of years ago. I had all the same reasons for changing over as Matt. My solar generation is exactly opposite of Matt's here in Florida. We have lots of rain in the summer. You definitely need to see your situation. There are a lot of factors that change the viability of solar. Just do not assume that it does not work for you. Go through all the modeling and financial programs to get to the bottom dollar. And don't forget, we are all needed to, save, to do our part to save the planet. Look at how you use power. I lowered my usage by 20% by just auditing our family's usage and making some simple changes. Every little bit helps. That's one of the comments I've gotten a lot on previous videos is just reduce your energy usage. It's like that only gets you so far, but like he pointed out, if he was able to shift 20%, that's that's a lot. I mean, 20% is an impressive number. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really good. And that harkens back to your older videos about how you do monitor your power usage. And it seems yes. like he's he's probably done something similar. He says he audited his family's usage. Yeah, there's many ways that you can do that. Like I use the Sense uh, home meter that tracks everything in my house collectively. But you can also do buy these little kilowatt readers at Home Depot for like 15 to 20 bucks. And then you can just plug a single thing in it, plug it in, see how much energy uses when it's 
being used, how much energy it's using when it's not being used, because that's one of the biggest drains. You have a television set. When it's turned off, it's actually not off. It's still draining 10 watts or 15 watts of power in a standby mm -hmm. mode. So it's like you'll start to find those things around your house, and there's some simple things you can do to cut that down. I'm curious about what those would be. Like if you've got a television that goes into that kind of standby mode that looks like off and but it is yeah. still draining power. What can you do in that case other than what our grandfather used to do, which was unplug it, unplug the television before going to bed. Uh, it's along those lines. Some TVs, they have settings inside of them for energy saving modes and stuff like that. And sometimes it's like the PlayStation is a good example. When you go to turn off your PlayStation, and you go to the power menu, it gives you two options. Go into standby mode or turn it off. Right. If you're in standby mode, it's still draining power. It's just in a sleep state. But if you power it off, it's off. So it's like some televisions give you that option. Um, there are things that you can buy. They're uh, smart um, power strips that you plug certain things into certain of the plugs, and it will know if it's it, like... I remember I had one of these at work. It actually had a motion sensor on it. So if you turned off your computer and then you left for the night and there was no motion in the area mm -hmm. for X amount of time, it would just turn off whatever's plugged into certain plugs. There's other systems that do something similar where it's like you can plug everything in and there's like this one master plug. And if that one thing turns off, everything else on the strip gets turned off. So it's like there's different things that you can do that will help mitigate that. So you could get smart power strips that you plug your entertainment system into and then when you turn it off it actually gets turned off because the power strip is just cutting power so there's things like that getting led light bulbs to replace incandescence stuff like that so it's there's all these different ways that you can trim back your your power usage here and there but then you're going to hit a wall where it's like i, I can't cut back more or right. i'm really going to start making my life weird um, Weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From my own experience with motion sensor power usage back, I don't know if you remember this far back, but I used to go into an office for work and <laughs> I stopped doing it sometime in, I think it was way back in early 2020. Um, or was that 202? Yeah, it was 202. It was the year 202. <laughs> <laughs> my office had motion sensors attached to the lights and there were more than a few times where I would be the only person in the area and I would be sitting so still that the lights would turn off. Yes. It was always <laughs> a little embarrassing to have that happen <laughs> to be, it was bad enough when I was, I, at one point in our offices, we had individual offices and then they did a massive restructuring of the building and they, turned a lot of they turned most of the office space into common offices so it was went from having an individual office just me to now working very closely with all of my colleagues and it was embarrassing enough to have it happen when you were alone in an office to be sitting in an office and have the lights shut off and then have to like stand up and walk around to get the lights turned back on because <laughs> nobody would see that you were in the <laughs> office the lights go off the lights come on nobody knows what's going on but to have that happen in a large common area. <laughs> no, I, I, I got one. I got one better than that, Sean. The office I used to work in in Boston, they had the something similar similar in the bathrooms. Oh, <laughs> this has happened to me. Yes. <laughs> At least a half a dozen times. And trying to flag a sensor that for some reason, the idiots who put the sensors into the room don't put them in the stalls. 
and they are so far around the corner that you can't just like <laughs> but now wave you're sitting, an arm over you're the sitting door. in complete darkness. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I, well, I can't, I can't exactly I can't clean jump things around. the way yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't get up and get the lights yeah. come back on so I can finish up what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had it happen once where the lights went out and I was just like, well, I'm not done yet. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And then somebody else came into the bathroom to come use the stall. And when they discovered it was locked, they came in, the lights were off, the lights turned on because they came in, they walked to the door, found it was locked. What? And I went, I'm sorry, it's occupied. And he was like, oh, okay. And then left. You're just... <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> what well, he must have been thinking of like he was just in the dark <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that's amazing yeah. oh my god yeah I'm crying <laughs> and there's a there's a part of me that thinks this should really be edited out of the podcast but I don't think I will I don't think we should this, no. this needs to be in there yeah. oh my god thank you Sean so motion detectors, <laughs> they suck. Pros and cons. <laughs> they, they are terrible. Yes, they are. They will make Woo. you look like a weirdo in front of coworkers. <laughs> Did you know that Sean likes to go poop in the dark? <laughs> I found our coworker sitting alone in a dark bathroom stall. So another comment <laughs> was from Fact Not Fiction. And his comment starts, Matt Farrell. Thank you for being honest about the net metering. Was there more to that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Your dramatic pause was like, wait, what? <laughs> Thank you for that being honest it. about the net metering. I feel too many people cheat by not pointing out that subsidy. Before I continue with his, the rest mm -hmm. of his comment, I'm going to ask you, can you explain what the net metering is? Well, it's not a subsidy, but... Net metering is when you overproduce electricity on your panels, it has to go somewhere. So that goes back into the grid, which means your excess energy is helping your neighbors, the community, because it's, it's adding to the electricity mix of the grid large. And for when you have net metering, what that means is that you're acting as a power plant. And so the utility is paying you for that energy. And the way they do that is they credit it to your account. So if you put a kilowatt of energy into the grid, they deduct a kilowatt from your bill. That's a one-to-one -one net metering, but not all of them do that. Sometimes they'll only pay you the wholesale price of the energy generation, but not the delivery charge. So if between delivery and supply, it costs you 20 cents, but the energy generation is only 10, you may only be getting back half of that. It varies state to state to state. It varies by utility. It's all over the, it's a, it's a hot mess across the country because there's no standardization right. to it. So it really depends on your supplier and where you are. And where I am, it's one-to-one. -one. The rest of his comment then, I'm, I'm not sure if, I am sure of one thing, that mm -hmm. I don't fully understand what is being discussed here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they continued, however... I do wish that you had included a calculation of the value of one-to-one -one net metering. In particular, calculating the payback period if the legislature 
or the Public Utility Commission changes that tax should be included in your payback timeline graphs. I sincerely doubt that any of your contracts offer to cover that eventuality. As Darren H. points out, Darren H. is another commenter, this is a hidden regressive imposed tax on ratepayers, and is so is an issue worthy of debate and clarity on our society's energy policies. Okay, I think they're missing the point. I think they're conflating two things. That's what I wondered if that was happening here. Yeah, I think they're conflating two things. There's the SREC credits, and then there's net metering. And they're two very different things. SREC credits is what he's talking about. That okay. is a legislative thing that they, like in Massachusetts, they mandated a certain amount of electricity has to come from renewable sources. And then you have utilities that are going, we can't meet that. So we have to uh, be creative about where we can get that from. And one of the easy places to do that is people who install solar panels on the roofs can be part of this solar renewable energy credit system that helps the utilities meet that mandate of they have to pursue they have to produce a certain percentage on the grid by a certain timeline and the way that they fund this program is that every utility payer is basically paying a little tax a little extra and so it works out to like per household it's in Massachusetts it's it's ridiculous it's like a couple of pennies a month it's like right. cents a month per house across the, the state and then what that money goes into the fund that pays people who get solar panels installed and apply into the SREC or smart program, which is what it's called today, they get paid based on the kilowatt size of their system and how much energy they're putting into the grid. There's a little bit of a double dipping here because when you combine SRECs with net metering, it really is double dipping because I have one-to-one -one payback through net metering. So every kilowatt I put in, I get a kilowatt off my bill. And then on top of that, I'm getting paid the SRECs, which is how much energy my, my solar panels is putting in the system that's getting paid out from that slush fund of the right. SREC credits. And that, that has a fixed timeline because it's an incentive program. Right. So for me, the SREC program lasts for 10 years. After 10 years, that shuts off for me. Um, but the net metering doesn't go away. So he's conflating two things. He's mistaking yeah. net metering for the SREC program. Net metering is effectively a business deal between you and the Correct. power company. It's like, it's no, it's, I am acting as a power plant and it's no right. different than the utility buying power from a different place and supplying it to the grid. That's right. all it is. It's a business transaction. The SREC program is a tax incentive program that is, it varies state to state some places don't even have it. So it's like, it varies all over the place. So when he said I should have been fair and calculated it, I did. In the video, I calculated it at the end. And I said, if I didn't have solar renewable energy credits, my payback period would have been, I can't remember what the years was. I showed it on the graph. I had a graph that showed two lines going up. So I, already, I did exactly what he talked about. So it's like, I'm not sure what he's, I don't think he understood what was going on. I think he, right. I think he got uh, confused. The last two comments I wanted to read are both reflective of sort of bigger, bigger picture thinking around solar panels in public life. Mm -hmm. Scott Bites wrote, when it's time to replace your roof, get a metal roof. 
I live in Pennsylvania, and it was the same cost for a high-quality metal roof as it was for shingles. I never have to worry about my roof ever again. What's, what's funny is I've been thinking about that. Like when it comes time for me to replace my roof or my wife and I've actually been talking about like if we moved, we built a home or something like that. It's like I've been eyeballing metal roofs because they mm -hmm. last longer than asphalt roofs. Right. Uh, I just have, I have a lot of questions though about like putting solar panels on a metal roof. Does that compromise it in a way that right. is concerning? So it's the like entire I, I, roof electrified or you can see birds just falling. <laughs> yeah. Squirrels getting smoky and fried as they... In the middle of the night, it's like a bug sapper. You just keep seeing... Another <laughs> <laughs> raccoon. <laughs> and finally, from the comment section from Adam Little, seeing your roof shape slash orientation and tree shading, I was reminded of something that occurred to me walking around my neighborhood. Most single-family homes in major cities will have similar issues, and yet this is where you're most likely to find folks with the capital and mindset to invest in solar. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that a solar company might be able to set up deals with local business owners that have large flat roof space available. So rather than investing 20000 in panels for your own less-than-ideal roof, you invest 20000 in panels nearby that can maximize their potential, maybe even on tiltable racks. Yeah. That, that almost sounds, as I was reading it now, I was thinking, well, Adam, I think you just struck upon an entrepreneurial idea and effectively as an entrepreneur to say, well, what if I made deals with places that have big wide roofs and paid them a rent fee to be able to put panels on their roofs and then sold that to the electric company? That's yep. a business. So, And it's a... It's actually a business that's actually already starting up. It's called Community Solar. I'm actually mm -hmm. starting to work on a video about this. But Community Solar is growing in popularity because not everybody can doesn't own their home or they yeah. don't want the upfront expense. And so what right. you do is you buy into a solar installation that's put somewhere and by buying into it, you get the you get a amount of money knocked off your utility costs. So you get the benefit of a slightly reduced utility bill but you don't have any of the maintenance issues you don't have something strapped to your roof and it's available to pretty much anybody in a certain community and it's, it's really cool. sort of the equivalent of buying stock in a company right Ex exactly it's like it's like i'm um, buying a timeshare i guess you could almost say it's 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 something similar to that um it's really kind of a cool concept and then businesses there's also incentive programs already at least in my state there's incentives for businesses to install solar on their roofs because like that SREC program I'm in it it's available to businesses over certain sizes it's a different program but there's state incentives for large scale solar installations that people mm -hmm. install uh the federal the federal uh tax credit for solar is expiring for homeowners at the end of next year but for commercial installations it's forever capped at 10 percent back but it's mm -hmm. like there's basically going to be a federal tech tax incentive for commercial installations in perpetuity, unless that's changed by the Congress. So it's, there are incentives already around trying to build out large scale installations that are there, that are out there already. Yeah. And if, if he, he's, he's definitely not alone in this thinking. And it's like, if he's an entrepreneur, he could get in on this <laughs> yeah. and try organizing some of this on his own and trying to build out a business around it. Cause there's definitely something there. I've noticed solar panels popping up on business roofs in Brooklyn, which mm -hmm. 
these large empty spaces on the top of, in some cases, warehouses. There's a large supermarket near here. And solar panels are starting to pop up on these things. And you can also sometimes identify solar panels that have been put on the roofs of brownstones in my neighborhood because they put them up on, they don't mount them directly to the roof. They put them on their own stand. Mm -hmm. So they end up looking almost like a canopy. So you can walk in our neighborhood and on top of some of the brownstones, you see these structures that look almost like a summer canopy, but it's actually the solar panel. So then then you have space underneath it. And I think potentially people are able to then use that almost like a, a canopy on their roof that they could actually go sit underneath because it's it's probably a good seven feet tall, eight feet tall. In Austin, when I was at Fully Charged, I went to the public library there, which uh, is astounding. If you ever want to do some sightseeing around Austin, there's a lot of really cool, sustainable green technology buildings. And the public library is one of them. And on the roof, there's like a roof deck that you can go out. And there's tables that you can sit at and work. And there's basically this gigantic canopy over a part of that roof that is basically just solar panels. And they're Solar panels that are, um, I don't know what, I don't know the right term, but it's like transparent. So it's like this, the cell itself is black, but the space in between the cells is clear. So it still lets filtered light a little bit come through, but for the most part, it's creating shade and it's just solar for the, for the building. It's really, really, really cool. So before we end, we can touch base on some of the things we've been watching and enjoying. And Matt, would you like to start us off? Sure. I think you may have brought this up last time, the haunting of Bly Manor. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I started, I started watching that a couple days ago. I've, I've only watched two episodes, but instantly my wife and I were like, Oh, we, we like this show. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, it's my kind of horror movie. It's like, it's not the kind I'm, I'm a horror show. It's not the kind of, there's no jump scares. It's, it's all just about, mood and tension and suspense and there's always these like shots that linger really long that make you go what am i supposed to be seeing in the background oh my god is there something in the background is that a person oh no it's just something on a shelf okay oh, okay it's like so yeah exactly so it's it the show does that perfectly and it's like i have had in the first two episodes like three or four times where i've gotten sh- like shivers down my spine. I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? Ah. <laughs> it is the perfect, just spooky, tension-filled, perfect time for Halloween TV show to be watching. So I, I and, and the characters are very compelling and you you immediately, just like um the, the same cast from The Haunting of Hill House, it's, the cast is so good. And like you yeah. immediately just identify with these characters and you know who they are within minutes and you just identify with them. And mm-hmm. The kids are lovely. The little girl that's in this show is just adorable. And the kid, the brother, that the little boy that plays the brother, he is endearing and terrifying at times. Yeah. <laughs> it's very like, well I'm, directed. Yeah. The, kid, the kids are very oh. well directed so that they can be and and also the kids are also good actors and and so it, the kids become a mix of oh I wish I liked them yes I it's because there's something wrong 
there's something going on and there's something yeah there's yeah there's something creepy it's like the one thing in horror movies it's like some of the scariest things in horror movies are children i don't know why why like characters walking through a dark you know basement and you hear like a little kid giggle in the background and then scampering feet and it's like it's terrifying i think we (laughs) have a mythology i think we've built up a mythology in our culture about the innocence of children yeah they're natively good they are natively pure and and there's a there's a whole that's a cultural assumption that's built around them they are meant to be protected they are they are good and if if somebody is malevolent that is something that is the result of their childhood that is not something that was present from birth and there's a whole uh, there's there's a book that uh i i looked at decades ago which was basically the mythology of childhood and how the victorian era began the era of constructing the idea that childhood was meant to be idyllic and protected that prior to that the assumptions about childhood was like if you're born you're now a human and life is tough and yeah. so the idea of squalor and struggle and pain in childhood is something that is from a human perspective relatively recent yeah and i think that horror also of grew in the victorian era and i have a feeling it's the it's the mirror side of that protectiveness is also then the pushing of those things in the other direction childhood is supposed to be pure horror is at the other end so when you mix those two that's the contrast yeah the child in the horror and that raises the the specter of this is even more malevolent than just malevolent adults because a yeah. malevolent child throws that entire worldview completely out the window. Yeah. If a child is malevolent, then the system is not working the way I thought it was and I can't trust anything. And I think that's what's happening when we see stories of like Victorian era orphanages and the ghosts of the child and you hear the scampering feet and like all of that well, is just creepy, creepy, creepy. Well, this show is doing a brilliant job of weaving between these kids are terrifying to these kids are trying to do the right thing and actually they're trying to protect the adults and then it goes back into the or are they or like it's like you keep weaving back and forth about how you feel about these children because you feel for them at the same time you're terrified of them in different scenes and the kids are really good that that little boy is surprisingly good and delivering a nuanced performance and i really tip my hat to the director because it's like I, I, it's like, I don't know how many takes it took to get that or how hard it was to get them to do that, but they, they've captured just the right performance from those kids. It's, it's a really, really, really good show. I agree. It's, it's impressive to see a child do something that looks malevolent while the child is also giving the sidelong glance to the other kid that lets yeah. you know that they don't want to do what they're doing. Yes. And there's that moment of like, we know we have to do this, right? Yeah, I don't want to do it either. And then yeah. the lies that follow. And everybody knows yeah. that everybody's lying. <laughs> it's just yeah. yeah. like, but what is happening? Yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful, it's a wonderful yeah. show. And I loved Hill House, but I agree. It's a very, it strikes a different tone without very. the jump scares. It becomes just a, it's a, a powerful ghost story, which is different from saying that it is terrifying. It is. Yeah, the, the Hunting at Hill House had a, a scene in a car 
that yeah, that's the one I broke my foot to. Yeah, yeah, it made me convulse and my arms were flailing in the air like a freak. Um, yeah, it, it, it had jump. It didn't have a ton of them, but it did have jump scares. Uh, the movie The Grudge did that to me too. I was in a theater and I remember there was a scene in the, that was such a horrible jump scare. Everybody in the audience like like leapt all at once, but my arms went flying. <laughs> and then immediately afterwards i started laughing uncontrollably (laughs) at what i had just done which then of course was very distracting to people around me but it's this show isn't doing that this show is just giving me shivers and giving making me sit up straight in my seat at times because it's just like oh this is so uh unbelievably tense right now what what i'm seeing on the screen so it's it's I, i i'm loving it it's great I was going to talk about something that was a horror film, but but as you were talking about the show that you've been watching, I decided to change exactly what I was going to be talking about. And initially I was going to talk about sort of the opposite end of horror from what you're describing, which was we've been rewatching the scream films. Oh, wow. And, and it's just been, it's been fun. They are in the, we just watched scream Four the other night and partway through it we paused because you know, popcorn had to be made and my girlfriend said so what do you think she'd seen the movie before i haven't seen it before and i had some issues with some of the writing and some of the choices but on the whole it's still it's just fun it's just yeah. a you know, yeah. fun popcorn film so it's like and they're smarter than a lot of films that are made in the same world you know in the same world of horror um they're smarter than a lot of those so i got a kick out of that but then as you were talking, I thought about another thing that I could talk about, which is on Netflix and it's called Session Nine. And it is a movie that is, it's a strange, it's a strange film from the perspective of how it's filmed. <laughs> it looks very much like it's filmed on high res digital as opposed to being as opposed to being on film or having the look of most movies have have a look about them you know what i mean where it's it's mm-hmm. the professional level of the the filming this looks a little bit more gorilla film made like it was probably a cheaper production probably mm-hmm. didn't cost a lot of money to make and it's a very small cast and the actors in it a couple of them have been you, you you recognize a couple of faces, but for the most part, it's like small character actors or people you haven't really seen before. One of the actors is a is a guy who's usually plays bullies in TV shows and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the setup is that there is a an old psychiatric hospital. The building that they use is creepy as hell. I mean. Mm-hmm. It, it is really like these buildings exist. This abandoned psychiatric hospital may be a real place, but it's this abandoned psychiatric hospital has to have asbestos cleanup done before it can be reused. There's going to be a, a project to reuse this place, but they have to get the asbestos out first. And the movie starts with this team where one of the members of the team is being He's things in his personal life. He's the the head of this company and he's basically got his back against the wall. His company is about to fold if he doesn't get work. So he really aggressively bids on this contract and makes promises that are going to be very hard to stand up to. So it's like we can get this done in a week. And he brings in his crew and they begin to experience things at the hospital. There are questions about like what happened here. 
and one of the crew members finds old tapes that are interview tapes with a patient. Somebody else is in a different area and they hear what sound like footsteps. There's mm. questions about things that are being found around the building. And it is, I would say it's sort of similar to the TV show that you just described in that it is largely the horror comes from the long sustained silences and yeah, yeah. long shots of a dark hallway, a guy who is in a basement and they've had to set up a generator and this guy goes deep into the basement and the generator dies and he's down in this basement. It's, it's that kind of horror of like, is there something down there with him? Mm -hmm. um, the entire movie is kind of like if you took the final 10 minutes of Blair Witch Project and filmed an entire movie within that 10 minutes of, is there a malevolent thing here? Is there, is what they're experiencing one person coincidentally losing their mind while other people are finding spooky things and it's just this one person is losing his mind or is it collective? Is something happening? Right. So session nine is, it's a little over an hour and a half. And like I said, when you start watching it, it's a little bit like, oh, this is, this is a little on the cheaper side, but it has that feeling of a very independent film that hit enough really strong notes that it got a wider release. And I think it was a film, if I remember correctly, I think it was a film that did really well at some film festivals and then it got picked up for wider distribution. So it was a, the little engine that could sort of film. And by the end of it, at the end of it, I absolutely do recommend it. There were a few things that are like, oh, I think, you know, if they'd done the little things here and there a little differently, they could have, of, it could have been a little bit stronger in some places, but for what it is, I think it's, it's a really fun and very perfect for this time of year, especially if you live in anywhere that is similar to like Western mass. It's like, you know, the sort of idyllic woods with this creepy hospital built yeah. in the middle of them. And the question of like, it's supposed to be lovely. It's supposed to be autumnal. It's supposed to be this, this supportive environment. It's supposed yeah. to be a hospital. And it turns out like there's something else happening here. Yeah. I just, I just looked it up and it takes place in Danvers, Massachusetts. I used to live not far from there. So <laughs> it's, yeah. This I, I might check this out. This also, I was just looking, came out in 2001, which is a couple years after the Blair Witch Project. Mm -hmm. So it it strikes me, there was a whole bunch of like copycat films that came out yeah. after that that were all this guerrilla filmmaking style, low budget, on video. So maybe that's why it has that video look because at that time yeah. that was very popular for horror movies. And I was also just saw on the, the wiki page for this that it was the one of the first films to be filmed in digital at 24 frames per second, which mm -hmm. so it was kind of trying to mimic that film look without actually yeah. being film. So it's yeah, I thought that was interesting. So everybody should let us know what they think. You can reach out to us on Twitter at still TBD FM. You can reach out to me directly at by Sean Farrell. And that's available at Matt Farrell or at Undecided MF. Please be sure to watch for the latest videos from Undecided with Matt Farrell on YouTube. And you can find the podcast at stilltbd.fm. And you can subscribe to it through any major podcast providers like iTunes or Spotify.
please be sure to give the podcast a rating, a review, and share us with your friends because it really does help the podcast. The podcast helps the channel, the channel helps Matthew, and then Matthew helps me keep the motion detector going. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.